I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And as you're turning there, there have been two people who have received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Foundation for the Blind. Two people. One of them is Helen Keller. You probably have heard of her. The other is a man by the name of Tom Sullivan. Tom Sullivan is an incredible man. He lives today still. And in spite of his blindness, he has excelled at life. Listen to some of the things that he's done. It's incredible. He graduated from Harvard on the dean's list. He has run marathons, shoots in the high 80s for golf, which is better than me. Not as good as pastor, but close. He skis. He was even inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame. He wrestled collegiately. He chose to be a singer-songwriter. He's appeared in TV shows. He's even sang the national anthem at a Super Bowl, Super Bowl X. He's written nine books and is a sought-after motivational speaker. But what's most incredible to me is that Tom has completed 37 solo parachute jumps. Solo parachute jumps, and he's blind. He listens to instructions through a radio transmitter in his helmet, and when someone asked him how in the world he could do this, his answer was almost as incredible as he is. He said, quote, sighted people are frightened by what they see. I obviously have no such hang-up. <laughs> Come again? <laughs> and I think Tom's statement applies to more than just parachute jumps. He actually went and flew an airplane as well with an instructor, but he flew it. Incredible. Tom's statement applies to spiritual things as well. God has called us as believers to walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But if we get honest with ourselves, we're pretty good at walking by sight, aren't we? We're often guided more by what we see and what we sense. And that goes for our thoughts and our minds and our thinking as well. When it comes to our minds, our thoughts are often guided more by our senses than by faith. Our senses, emotions, experiences tend to control our thoughts far too frequently. And as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, for us to grow spiritually, for us to walk with Christ, we not only have to live by faith, we need to think by faith not by sight. We must learn to reason by faith. And this is the final message of a three-part series entitled, A New Way of Thinking. And each week we're unpacking this statement. Because your thinking is the key to spiritual growth, you must develop the ability to reason biblically by rooting your thinking in scriptural truth. And each week we've taken one statement and kind of fleshed it out more completely. The first week, two weeks ago, we took the first idea. Your thinking is the key to spiritual growth. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, and saw three reasons why. Last Sunday, we were in Psalm chapter 1, and we unpacked the final phrase, rooting your thinking in scriptural truth. And the contrasts between the way of wisdom and the way of the ungodly in Psalm 1 encourage us to make scripture the primary influence on our minds, to resist the influence of the world around us. This week, we conclude and cap our series with the final part of the statement, which is actually the central part of the statement. You must develop the ability to reason biblically. Well, what does this mean? To reason is to think, to understand, to form judgments by a process of logic. To reason biblically, you must 
learn or you need to learn to process information in light of biblical truth. In other words, scripture has to control the way you think, which then controls the way you live. And when scripture controls how we think, the judgments we make, the conclusions we draw will be aligned with scriptural truth. This type of thinking does not come naturally, does it? We're much better at reacting to what we can see or thinking about what is around us than thinking through God's word. So we need to learn to reason by faith. And that's the title of the message today, Reasoning by Faith. And the big question I want to propose is very simply this, how do we reason by faith? What does it mean to reason by faith? What does it look like to reason by faith? And to answer that question, we've turned to Genesis 22, and we will see from Abraham's example how to reason by faith. And there'll be five steps from this passage that really demonstrate to us what it means to do this. Let's start by reading Genesis 22, 1 through 2, to get the background, and then we'll make a couple comments to set up the story. Genesis 22, 1 through 2. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you've been in church for a long period of time, you're familiar with this story, but let's try as best we can to view this story as if we were seeing it and hearing it for the first time. Don't rush in your mind to what the conclusion is. Let's simply try to see what Abraham is going to do as the story progresses. What's the background here? Well, years ago, God called Abraham out of his homeland to go to the land of Canaan. That's in Genesis chapter 12. God gave him immense promises in the form of a covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. One of these promises, of the four major promises was that Abraham would have as many descendants as there are stars in the heavens and sand on the seashore. Another promise was that he would have a son named Isaac who would carry on Abraham's line. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. That's what we call a miracle. It is after these things, after Isaac is born, that God tests Abraham. And this test comes in the deepest part of his heart. What was the test? Take Isaac, your beloved son, go to this mountain and offer him as a burnt offering. Kill him. These instructions are clear, but they're very troubling, aren't they? Notice how God describes Isaac. He says, your only son, the son whom you love. The son you love so deeply, the son through which your offspring will be named, the son of promise. Take that son and kill him as you would an animal sacrifice. And there are two things I think that are very difficult here. First is the obvious command for human sacrifice. This is the only time in scripture that God commands it, and it's a test. God doesn't let him go through with it. God abhors human sacrifice as we see in other parts of scripture that is very clear. But beyond that is who Abraham is supposed to sacrifice. God specifically chose Isaac to be the recipient of the covenant promises. God even called his name Isaac before he was born. How then can this son of promise die and simultaneously be the one through whom the lineage continues? 
That's what we call an impossible situation. And this is where Abraham starts to reason by faith. Somehow, he finds a way in his mind to make this all fit together. Because the next morning, the very start of verse 3, he rose early in the morning and began his journey. The next morning, he obeys. So after receiving the command to sacrifice Isaac, what does Abraham do? He starts thinking. I can imagine him, maybe if he received this, this discussion from God in the morning or in the afternoon, he has to go through the rest of his day. He has to tend the animals. He has to talk with the servants. He has to eat. But all through that, he begins to process. He begins to think. I imagine as he lay in bed that night, his mind is racing. He can't sleep, and he's reasoning, trying to figure out what to do. So how does he go about reasoning by faith? The first thing he does is he injects God into the situation. He injects God into the situation. To inject God into the situation, you have to know God. There's a prerequisite here. Knowing God is a prerequisite to biblical thinking. Because in the situations of life, we will have our spiritual depth exposed. Hardships will cause us to cling to what we already know to be true about God. Before this story even happens, let's think about what Abraham knew about God. He knew, experienced, and believed God's promises, God's nature, and God's track record of faithfulness for at least 20 years probably closer to 35 or 40 at this point. So when he injects God into the situation, what do you suppose he thinks about? Well, I think he thought about God's promises. He remembers that God had promised to make him a great nation. He remembered the promise that God will bless him. He remembered the promise that through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Second, he remembers God's person. He rehearses who God is, that God was Abraham's shield, that God was Abraham's reward, that God was El Shaddai, the almighty God. He rehearses God's past performance. He reflects on what God had done, God's track record, we could say, what God had done in the past, how God had brought him from the land of Canaan, how God had changed his name from Abram to Abraham, how God talked with him face to face before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, how God blessed him with immense wealth, and how God gave him a child in his old age. And then I imagine Abraham blinking slow and hard at this situation because this was a direct command from that same God. We will never face a situation where God commands us to sin or do something that appears to be sin. Our tests in our lives never rise to this level. And for that, we can be thankful. While he could not know what God was doing, Abraham could still reason by faith and calculate a faith-inspired response to the situation. And that's exactly what he did. Reasoning by faith calculates a faith-filled answer to the situation. Abraham took out his mental pencil and paper and wrote out a formula in his mind. God's promises, God's person, and God's past performance, plus God's command, and then calculated a conclusion that accounted for all without compromising any. His solution accounted for all of those things. And his answer was filled with faith because his conclusion was both impossible and unprecedented. Well, what did he conclude? Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 19 tells us, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, 
that God was able even to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. At the beginning of verse 19 is that word conclude. That word conclude means to determine by mathematical process, to give careful thought or to hold a view. What Abraham did was a careful, he came up with a careful, calculated answer to a real life problem. What did he conclude? He concluded that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Not that God would do this or that God had to do this, but that God was able to do this. We look at that and say, that's genius. No, that's not genius. That's reasoning by faith. Ken Collier says this. He was the president of the wilds for many years. When there is a gap between the wisdom and the ways of God and our understanding of God's wisdom and ways, we must fill that gap with trust. Abraham filled the massive gap that he had, the Grand Canyon-sized gap, with faith, not with doubt, not with complaint, not with fear, not with anger. He gave God the benefit of the doubt. He chose to believe that God could do something he had never done before rather than doubt his trustworthy God. He chose to believe that God could do something God had never done before rather than doubt his trustworthy God. I love this. It was more reasonable for Abraham to conclude that God could do something impossible and unprecedented than it was to believe that God broke his word, changed his nature, or made a mistake. It was more reasonable to believe that God had something impossible in the works than to believe that God had broken something, that God had made a mistake. And the encouraging thing is that you and I can follow this same process in our lives. Think about whatever situation scares you the most right now, or at least whatever situation would be ranked number one in your thoughts, what you think about the most right now. Do you have it in mind? Okay, now, remember God's promises. What has God promised to you and I in Scripture? Perhaps you need to remember that God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Maybe you need to remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. Maybe you need to remember that God works all things together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Maybe you need to remember that there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Then you need to rehearse God's person. Who is God? What attributes affect your situation? Is it his love, his unfailing, loyal love? Is it his goodness to you that he's for you, that he'll never leave you? Is it his justice that he will make all things right? Is it his mercy that he does forgive and cleanse? Is it his faithfulness that he will never drop the ball, that he'll always be loyal? To remember God's promises, rehearse God's person, and then reflect on God's track record. What has God done in scripture that shows and proves his reliability? What has God done for you personally? How has God worked in your life in the past that gives you a reason to trust him in the future? Then calculate an answer. Ask yourself, what am I gonna fill this gap with? How am I going to explain the gap between my understanding of God and my situation at hand? And really, there are only two options here. Either you trust your perspective of the situation and refuse to believe God and you doubt him. Or you trust God's perspective of the situation in spite of what you sense. You let your faith in God change your view of the situation in that instance. And at many points in life, we've all been here, but at many points in life, we will face circumstantial evidence 
that could be interpreted as a failure in God's role, in God's person, in God's promises. Are you facing any of these things right now? Do you have anything in your life that you could say, you know, God has failed me? That's going to happen. But remember, it is more reasonable to conclude that God can do something impossible or unprecedented than it is to believe that God has broken his word, changed his nature, or made a mistake. It's more logical for us to side with God than what we see. That's what reasoning by faith is. And when we reason this way, we will see two practical results in our lives. And Abraham showed us what these results are. The first is obedience. Reasoning by faith prompts obedience to God. Genesis 22, 3 through 10 shows us and describes to us Abraham's obedience to God's command. Well, how does he obey? Verse 3, he rose early in the morning. He didn't sleep in, he didn't drag his feet. He rose early in the morning and went to the place God told him. He didn't turn back on the journey. He went all the way to the mountain. It took two days to even come in within sight of it. Then when he finally got there, he climbed the mountain. He took Isaac with him. Then he built the altar and he prepared Isaac to be the sacrifice. He even took hold of the knife to slay his son, verse 10 says. He was ready to go through with it. Obedience was not easy, emotionally or physically. He had to journey two days to get to the mountain and then climb the mountain on top of it. But I think we would agree that the emotional burden made the physical journey seem very small by comparison. Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine walking for three days knowing that you had to kill your own son at the end of the trip. You'd walk a little slower, wouldn't you? But faith always results in obedience. If your thinking doesn't result in obedience, there's a problem with your thinking. Computer programmers refer to problems in the software as a bug in the system. When you and I aren't obeying, there's a bug in our thoughts. There's a bug in the system. So think about that situation in life that you thought about a moment ago. The thing that's the greatest concern to you. Even in that situation, are you walking with the Lord? Are you obeying him? Are you striving to grow in holiness? Or have you excused disobedience because you're facing a challenge? The, the obstacle is so big that you're willing to let some other things slide on the side. God doesn't discount ordinary obedience when extraordinary situations come. God doesn't discount that. In fact, he often works through the little steps of obedience. He often uses those little things that we do to be part of the solution to the problem. What's amazing is that Abraham's faith has transferred to Isaac because Isaac also obeys. Think about this. Abraham is old, anywhere from 110 to 130. Isaac is between 10 and 30. Who is faster? The answer is not Abraham. Do you think a 120-year-old man could catch a 15-year-old boy? Who's stronger? Do you think that this 115, 120, 125-year-old man could overpower his teenage or young adult son, bind him, and then toss him up on the altar by himself? I don't think so. Isaac has to yield and obey also. And I think there's a lesson here in this, that there's a spiritual attractiveness to our lives when we live by faith. Abraham didn't have all the answers to the problem. We're not going to have all the answers either. All he had was God and his faith in God, and yet his faith in God stabilized not only him and led to obedience, it stabilized his son and led to his son's obedience. That's a legacy of faith. 
Isaac followed his father's footsteps. But the obedience here is paired with a second response, and that is trust in God. Reasoning by faith not only obeys the Lord, it entrusts the situation to God. Look with me at Genesis 22, 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Can you feel Abraham's stomach just hit the floor? Where is the lamb? Verse 8, Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Again, don't miss what's happening here. Isaac and Abraham are walking up the mountain. They're climbing the mountain. When Isaac looks around and he says, hey, dad, I see the wood and I see the fire, but we're missing one of the ingredients. Where is the animal? That's the most important part of the sacrifice. And Abraham's response is incredible. God will provide for himself the lamb. What an answer. He simultaneously told the truth and shielded Isaac from it because he didn't want to tell Isaac the truth until the time was right. But more than that, this answer expresses hero-sized faith. Abraham entrusted the situation to God, and this answer proves it. God was responsible for the lamb. God was going to do something. Abraham didn't know what. What would your response have been in this situation? What would you have said? Faith is expressed through our lips. Abraham's answer betrayed not his doubts or his worries, but his faith, his trust in God. Now, can you imagine that moment when Abraham finally told Isaac that he was the sacrifice? Can you feel the lump in your throat as he croaks out the words that the son of promise is the lamb, that God Almighty, who never makes a mistake, has commanded his sacrificial death? Can you imagine what Isaac felt? Can you imagine the the realization that it dawned on him? And yet amazingly, once again, Abraham's faith has been passed on to Isaac. Because Isaac also trusts. Isaac allows his father to bind him. He allows him to lay him on the altar. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Isaac also believed God could raise him from the dead just like his father believed. Just like obedience, faith will always result in trusting God. So if we are not trusting God, there's a problem in our thinking. What about you? Could you say that in that situation that I've called your attention to a couple times, could you say that you are honestly trusting the Lord with that burden? That you have reasoned through the situation and come to a place where you trust God and are at peace with it? You say, that's a tall order. It is, but it's God's will. And God gives us the grace always to do his will. A lack of trust in God means there's another bug in our system. And the diagnosis here is a lack of faith in God. So we start by confessing our lack of faith. We get on our knees and we say, Lord, forgive me. Help me believe you rather than doubt you. And then you repeat the process. You go back to number one. You inject God in the situation. You rehearse God's promises in person and past performance. Then you calculate a new answer based on what you know to be true about God. And sometimes you will need to calculate and cling to a single truth. To the one thing you know and can believe about God. You don't have to have a systematic theology in front of you and say, I believe it all. One thing is able to supply your needs. One truth about God can get you through anything. Because God is that good. And he is that perfect. 
So find that one thing, that promise, that attribute, that one thing that will anchor you and encourage you to trust him more. Now, the final part of reasoning by faith is really the consequence of this whole process. Reasoning by faith accepts God's solution to the situation. And I think there are two huge lessons here from Abraham. Now, we left the narrative with Abraham stretching out his hand, taking the knife to slay his son. He's brandishing the knife, and Isaac's laying there on the altar, and they're about to go through with it. And it is then that God intervenes at the last possible moment. Verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I can picture both of them collapsing in tears because they were both ready to go through with that, but they didn't want to. But they trusted God more than they refused to obey him. They obeyed and trusted. God was in control of the situation the whole time, wasn't he? We have to admit that. He was in control of the situation the whole time, but he let it play out to the end to solidify the intended lesson. And God is in control of your situation from start to finish but he may let the trial grow in intensity to solidify the lesson he wants you to learn. Are we okay with that? There's an American mindset where the best thing to do when we get into trials is to get out of it. That the number one goal in hardship is to escape it. And sometimes that's not God's will. Sometimes we have to have a three-day journey knowing what is happening. Sometimes we have to bind our son and put him on the altar. Sometimes the intensity is going to grow and grow and grow before God finally works. Then God provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac. Verses 13 and 14 tell us this. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And this obviously foreshadows the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who most likely is on the same mountain 2,000 years later, dying on a cross as the Lamb of God. And there are many, many connections to note with Christ's sacrifice. We'll have to save that for another time. The point here for our consideration today is that Abraham had come to accept God's solution. In this instance, God intervened and rewarded Abraham by sparing his son and providing a lamb. But what if God didn't choose to intervene? What if God doesn't choose to intervene in your situation? The three Hebrew men, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace, demonstrate this type of faith. When they don't know if God's going to intervene, they show us exactly what to do. When faced with the command to bow or to burn, they said simply, God is able, same word, God is able to deliver us, But if he chooses not to, we will still obey him. God is able to do it, but if he doesn't, we will still obey him. Even if God permits hardship, God is still who he says he is. He is still the unchanging good God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God is always able to deliver. That's not in question. But if he chooses not to, he is still God. God is not beholden to us. Faith 
is always content with God's solution to the trial. And when I say always, I don't mean that every single moment, contentment is a struggle, right? It's a challenge. It's something we work toward. But faith is content with God's solution to our trial. Can you say that you are content with your challenges? Can you say that you've accepted God's solutions to past hardships? That instead of being bitter or angry or fearful or regretful or even wistful over the past, I just wish the good old days would come back, you can accept God's solution to your situation. In fact, you have to if you want to reason by faith. This is how Abraham did it. And if we step back to see the process Abraham used and we look at the five points, something very interesting happens because reasoning by faith follows the same scriptural flowchart we talked about in Ephesians 4, that beliefs about God lead to our thoughts, which then result in actions. Notice how each point in our consideration today corresponds to this. Inject God in this situation means we believe rightly about God. And then we calculate a faith-filled answer. That's our thoughts. And then those thoughts lead to actions of trust and obedience, and the result is contentment and acceptance. I encourage you to apply this same process of thinking by faith, of reasoning by faith to your situation. And I've not gone into specifics today, but whatever you're facing that feels insurmountable, whatever you're seeing that seems to contradict God's promises or makes it seem like God is not who he says he is, that's when you need to start reasoning by faith especially at those times. This type of thinking applies to all situations in life, though. We start by injecting God into the situation, and this takes some mental effort. We have to think about what God says. We have to study his word. We have to know who God is. We have to remember his promises. We have to behold his person. We have to consider his past performance, both in Scripture and in our lives. And then we calculate a faith-filled answer that fills the gap with faith. Not with anger, not with fear, not with discontentment or disgruntledness, but with faith. Giving God the benefit of the doubt. Changing our view of the situation based on who God is. Then we respond in trust and obedience. And it may take some time to think about how we can increase our obedience and increase our trust in God. This is not natural to us. Our minds, Ephesians 4 says, are futile and darkened, but we have a new mind in Christ. We can think this way. And when we think this way, we can come to accept God's solution, no matter what the outcome may be, because we're content with God, and therefore we're content with what he's given us. And then, repeat the process as often as you need, whether that is daily, hourly, or even minute by minute. This morning, I was repeating this process. Here at church, I was repeating this process rehearsing God's character, thinking and saying, no, I need to calculate a new response because I'm worrying about something. It's a moment-by-moment process. But when you practice this process enough times, you begin to form new mental habits. And though this may feel insurmountable, you can learn to reason by faith. You can do it because of God's grace. If you can imagine your thoughts being a pathway that you walk, And over time, the pathway is well-trod. There's a rut in the path. And if you can imagine, the rut becomes like a slot canyon that you're traveling this path over and over and over again so that when you look up to where you need to go, the walls around you feel insurmountable, but the walls are your own making because it's your wrong thinking. Well, to get to where you need to go, you can't simply say, I'm just gonna climb out these walls. You have to turn around, retrace your steps, and form new pathways of thinking. 
But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has died and rose again to give you a new mind. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. He will give you the grace to learn to reason by faith. And by his grace, over time, you will develop a new way of thinking. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, the Lord Jesus Christ makes all these things possible. Without him, we are dark, darkened in our minds, futile in our thoughts, vain in our imagination. We need Christ. Abraham, a man who walked with God, recognized as a hero of the faith, faced hero-sized giants. And yet, through his example, through his test, we see the solution for our own. We know that your grace is available, so I pray all across this room today that we would choose to follow this process of reasoning by faith. That we would surrender our challenges to you. That we view our problems in light of who you are and in light of what you have done. That we would not allow obstacles to cause doubt in our hearts and in our minds. May we fill the gap with faith and not doubt. Thank you for your grace, Father. We know that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we know that you will give us the strength we need to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.